Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 41 of the End of Sport podcast. Uh, my name is Nathan Coleman Lamb, and I am joined today by Johanna Mellis. Hi, Johanna. Hi. This is a great episode for us. I mean, we get to talk about fandom, about sport, about what's wrong with sport, about the ethics of it all. Uh, what else do you want on the End of Sport podcast, really, right? I mean, this is what we all signed up for. Um, so I don't think that uh, we, really, we really need to provide a much more introduction other than to say um, that our two guests today, Kavitha Davidson and Jessica Luther, are um, two people that you absolutely want to hear about when it comes to the question of fandom and athletic labor and all of the contradictions and challenges of watching sport because they are two of the preeminent uh, journalists and thinkers and critics of sport that we really have today. Uh, and so we're delighted to share our, um, our discussion with you. But before we get to that, we just also want to mention that um, the, uh, the End of Sport crew, uh, the three of us have written uh, another piece, this one in Jacobin Magazine about gymnastics, harm, history, uh, and the resilience of Red Scare narratives when it comes to telling a story about why there is harm in U.S. gymnastics. And we would love for you to check that out. So we will include a link to it in the show notes. Please check that out, especially if you've been listening to our work on gymnastics, because it is heavily informed by the conversations we've had and the thinking we've been doing on this show so far. Absolutely. And if you have not already, as always, please, please, please uh, rate, review, and subscribe. Leave us new text reviews. Um, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at End of Sport Pod. We all spend an obscene amount of Twitter, so you will almost always see one of us on there, except when we're sleeping, which isn't that much. So please uh, get in touch with us on Twitter. Um, you can also email us at theendofsport at gmail.com. And you can also find us on our website, which is www.theendofsport.com. Please support us through our Patreon. We really want to be able to improve the quality, buy better mics, better headsets, um, all of those great things that will really just make the show that much better for you. So please, please do that. And uh, we really, really hope that you enjoy the show. Kavitha Davidson is a sports reporter for The Athletic and former writer for ESPNW and Bloomberg. Her work has also appeared in venues such as Rolling Stone, The Guardian, NBC News Think, and Best American Sports Writing. And she is also the host of The Athletic's podcast, The Lead, which you need to check out. Jessica Luther is a journalist, co-host of the great Burn It All Down podcast, which our listeners know we are huge fans of, and PhD candidate in the physical culture and sports studies program at the University of Texas, Austin. Her work has appeared in venues such as ESPN Magazine, New York Times Magazine, Sports Illustrated, BuzzFeed, and on and on. She is also the author of the book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, College Football and the Politics of Rape. Together, they are the authors of the brand new book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Sports Fan from University of Texas Press. It is an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the show with us today. How is 2020 treating you in first, how about Kavitha in, in New York and then Jessica in Austin, Texas? Uh I mean, not better or, or worse than I think it's treating the rest of us, frankly. I'm 
currently right now doing a lot better than I've been doing in the last six months because I just last weekend moved back home to New York from LA. And frankly, I had not left my apartment in LA in literally six months except to get my mail. So Oof. it's it's fine. Um, these six months have been a little bit of a blur. I did a lot of adult paint by numbers. Um, and, <laughs> uh, and yeah, but you know, had obviously a lot of time to reflect on some of the things that we've written in the book, uh, you know, because I've been at home just wa watching TV and reading a lot. And I think I am doing as well as someone can do. It's funny because I'm sitting here in my house and I can. Hopefully you all can't hear him, but I can hear my child playing video games with friends online <laughs> through the wall. <laughs> and then like yeah. I, my husband is out in the living room practicing his guitar. Like I just, everything has been very close. We've all been very close to each other, <laughs> but um, I think overall I'm doing well. Yeah. Well, we're, we're glad to hear that. And totally, I think, Absolutely. you know, we and all of our listeners can relate to those experiences that you're both having. Um, that is certainly what 2020 is like. So there's, I mean, really, there's given the themes of our show in general and the work that you both do, I mean, there's really countless things for us to get into. Um, but the first thing I'd love to start with is is the book itself. I would love it if you could both give listeners a rundown maybe of the book's main argument and what inspired you to take on this project together. Um, well, you know, one of the, the through lines in the book is basically just that sports have always meant more than just what happens on the field. Um, sports have always been a mirror of society and a reflection of where we are um, culturally, societally, historically. Um, and a lot of the issues that we deal with in every chapter um, is are connected in that way, that they're just a reflection of who we are. But every chapter basically deals with a different moral or ethical dilemma um, that we experience as sports fans and in Jessica, in my case, um, as sports writers. Um, but how we reconcile those dilemmas and those ethical issues with the fact that we still love these games, we still love these athletes and um, and and these teams um, and, and how kind of to be a conscientious sports fan um, while while thinking, you know, multiple things at once about what you're watching. Yeah, Kavitha got it. <laughs> I mean, my elevator pitch is always that it's uh, every chapter is a different theme in sports that a conscientious sports fan might have issues with and sort of how we got here and in some cases where we're going. Excellent. Well, we'll certainly be diving into some of the specific chapters and issue issues that you both discuss in the book. Uh, but but we kind of next wanted to sort of bring it to the present moment. Um, and so the the most urgent of these issues is, of course, the the recent wave of player strikes across sports in response to the attempted murder by police of Jacob Blake um, and the general onslaught of real estate violence against Black people in the U.S. And in the intro of the book, you noted that quote. Fans love sports, but it's unclear if sports love them back. You love sports, but do sports love you back? This is the ultimate truth in the long history and the current state of sports and politics. As Kavitha once wrote for ESPNW, quote, when you think about it really, the division between sports and politics has long been eroded. The separation is what takes effort to uphold, and it's mostly done by people whose right to exist in this space isn't questioned. The stick to sports mantra has been repeated time and time again by fans who view sports as a form of pure escapism, which is understandable. 
But the reality for many fans and players is that sticking to sports has never really been an option, particularly for people whose mere participation in competition can be seen as a radical act in itself. With this context in mind, we'd love to hear both of your thoughts on how you read these strikes and the role of athletes in this current moment. Hmm. Seems like a, to me, there's something just normal about it. I Not normal, but that it makes sense that this is happening now. I think a lot of stuff with COVID in general has been laid bare. Um, all the problems that we see around inequities, around uh, racial inequities, around class inequities, all these things are just so obvious in this moment. And mm. everything is hard. I, I, on some level, it's easy. It, I think maybe we imagine these people live in a bubble or a wobble and that, that, that that's easy because everything's sort of catered to them. But that's mm. also very hard. They're living away from their families in these stressful situations. Everything is stressful for everyone right now. And I feel like part of what happened last week is a lot of Black people that I know that aren't athletes, but certainly these athletes like are tired. Like these are exhausting things to have to manage on a day to day basis, and then to have to go out there and do it as entertainment for people while trying to make sense of how messed up so many things are in our world. I don't. It was surprising because we've never seen anything quite like it, but also it didn't feel surprising. I don't know how you felt about it, Kavitha, but when I mean, I was riveted. I immediately turned on NBA TV so I could follow along on the television because I did want to know what was happening. And mm. I don't I you know, I had that flicker of hope, that inspiration um, to see these people make this decision in this moment on such a on such a platform. But I don't know. I also wasn't surprised that that was a decision they were making. Yeah, I mean, I think that especially where we are now, you know, we have been hearing for the last six months since Rudy Gobert tested positive um, for the Utah Jazz and effectively shut down the whole world of sports. We have been hearing nothing but how valuable these athletes are to these institutions and mm -hmm. to television contracts and and how much money has just been has that, they, that these leagues and these owners have stood to lose without resuming play. And you don't resume play without having players. So obviously, if we've been hearing this, you have players, professional and college athletes being reminded that they actually have a lot more power than that I, I think we've ever acknowledged before. So so they're they're using that now when it comes specifically to um, to what we're seeing in the NBA and the WNBA and, and athlete activism for racial against racial injustice. I, I agree exactly with what Jessica said. They're tired. They're 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 broken in so many ways. I, I've talked to so many of my black friends in the in the last couple of weeks and um you know really the last few months and and it's just an exhaustion. Um and you know what you're seeing right now is players saying enough is enough. And you know, one of the things that Doc Rivers um you know he gave a press conference before the Milwaukee Bucks decided to strike. Um, or walk out. And he gave a, a press conference, I think it was a day before that or two days before that, um, after after a playoff game. And it was a very emotional, raw um, statement that he made about the realities of him being a black man in America. And he said, um, 
you know, we love this country. We just want it to love us back. And I know that, you know, it, it sounds like a refrain for our book because that's exactly what we're saying um, about all of these broader issues is that, you know, you get so much from these games and, and, and there's obviously a reason that we keep coming back, but the, the power dynamic, the relationship's unequal. It's not totally reciprocal. And black, black people in America have have known that part of their dynamic for hundreds of years and black athletes in particular, because then there's a whole labor aspect on top of, of everything. And, and what you're seeing is that to really, that's starting to really spark change. What's been extremely fascinating to me in this particular, what we've seen unfold in the last few days is that, you know, we often talk about these athletes as if they're stupid often talk about these Mm -hmm. athletes as if they have no idea what they're asking for, what they're doing, the way that people talked about Colin Kaepernick, who might not have always been, you know, the, the most uh, well-spoken about what he was, what he was kneeling for. But, um, you know, the way that people have talked about him directly attacking his intelligence is the way that we've talked about athletes being activists in, in, you know, over over the years and what we saw with the bucks is that they refused to they sequestered themselves in their locker room until they got the wisconsin attorney general and the lieutenant governor of the state on the phone to ask them what are the tangible things that we can that we can work toward for change and they emerged with asking the wisconsin senate to reconvene to come back into session to pass a a police reform bill that was that was introduced back in June. Um, if you look at the list of demands uh, that these players have put out, these are tangible things. These are not, you know, um, rhetorical, you know, we just want you to be better toward us. They're, they're actually asking you to get rid of mandatory minimums and things like that. So I, I think it's been really incredible to witness how that shift has happened. And I, I hope that it, I hope it only continues. Yeah. Wow. Uh, there's so much there. Thank you so much for that. That was um some of the kind of clearest analysis actually I've, I've heard so far um, about what we've seen transpire. And I, I loved how you connected it to the pandemic actually at the beginning, right? And the fact that like, this is a moment that has shown everyone, you were both saying this, this is a moment that's shown everyone. Um, some of the themes that, you know, some of us have long understood about um, athletic labor and race and racism. Uh, but for most people, they have not really been so clear. Uh, and suddenly, you know, just the sheer value of that athletic work has been um, laid bare for everyone. And then that in turn fuels this kind of, it leverages the the power of that labor then in a moment like this. I I think that's a a terrific connection to make. So, I I mean, I actually do kind of want to follow up because you kind of have me thinking so much. So a couple of things that emerged for me then are, and and you were getting at this, Kavita. So I I think you partially answered this question already by saying that, you know, they had there were very concrete demands um, that they were they were ensuring would be met before they ended the labor action. Um, that so that partially answers the question I'm kind of formulating, which is what do we make of the ending, right? Which to a certain extent felt like it was, um, you know, this is I mean this is all a question of framing, but it, to a certain extent it felt premature in part because I think we were at least tantalized with the notion that this might be an indefinite. Type of event uh, as it was playing out, and and I, I think one of the problems with how it was playing out, frankly, was the fact that it was being leaked to the public by by reporters who you know will normally leak who's going to be draft next 
the next draft pick or the next trade or whatever else. But that's not necessarily ideal when we're talking about a labor action, which is hopefully like has some room for more tactical development than that and strategizing around um, public relations, right? Which is a really difficult part of any labor action. And I think I'm not, I'm not, actually, I'm not blaming players for this. I think this is one of the real challenges with the, just the whole ecosystem that exists there. Um, but anyway, I, I mean, because of that, like we were hearing, for instance, that the Lakers and Clippers were going to continue to hold out and then suddenly they weren't going to hold out. Um, so I don't know. I'm left. I personally feel left with like a, a little bit of um, just slight, at least some kind of frustration for what might have been and even pushing further, given the incredible impact they had in even such a short period of time. So I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that issue. And then the, and the second part of it is. Also, this call it the college sport issue and college football because they're not playing right now. I mean, they're being forced to work, but they're not playing games other than the one game we had last night. Um, but they're going to be soon, and we've already had so many rumblings so far this summer, which have been amazing. There was a I'm game cur- last yes, night. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. There was like an FCS game last yeah. night. Yeah, Central oh, Arkansas. Okay. I think. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Sorry, go ahead. The kickoff of the season, yeah, uh, okay. which horrified me. It really happened. I have been hoping, huh. praying that it would never actually come to this, but it has. It's actually happened. So I don't know. I'm, I'm also curious about what you think the impact might be there because it's hard to imagine at this point that there won't be an impact, I think. So I'd like to start uh, with the first part of your question. And I think organizing any kind of labor movement in the way that we would like to see, I think, is really hard work and takes a lot of time and the type of organization that needs to happen in order for it to be probably what you were more wanting to see, Nathan. Um, I think we need to look at the WNBA and they have moved as one in a way that is amazing and they're working in a different space there's certainly not the money there and they don't have the same level of platform but i mean one of the things that really struck me that night what day of the week was that wednesday <laughs> i can't remember the days anymore yeah uh when when the w decided not to play they were all together in that moment and holly Rowe kicked it over to elizabeth williams who's on the atlanta dream which is this team that is battling their owner very publicly at this point in time. And she already had an, a statement for the entire W players that she read. And the W in general has had a, a singular focus with this season and in their return. And that took a ton of work, right, to get to that point where they could make really quick decisions as a group and have a statement all together. And I think what kind of what we saw with the NBA is they don't have that stuff in place yet. And so maybe moving forward, we'll get to see different actions from them. This did feel like a hope. I mean, I'm hopeful in the sense that this was a beginning and may I, and maybe we'll see something more flushed out, fleshed out in, in the future. Uh, but they definitely have a sister organization they could look to, to see how it is that they're communicating, how it is that they got everyone to wear the vote for Warnock shirts, which is the senator or the person running against the owner of the Atlanta Dream for the Senate seat in Georgia. Like they did that so quickly within days of all the blow up around uh, the owner saying that she didn't believe in 
black that she felt like Black Lives Matter was too political and bad, and they should rally around the flag instead. Um, so I think that's part of it. Is it just? Yeah, I was with you. Like I, there was a part of me that wanted them to just walk out, like just leave the bubble and and go from there. But that was also a lot to ask in that moment for these people who've been sacrificing a lot from their families to begin with. I mean, it's so hard. Um, and it's easy for me to sit in my little house here and say what I think that they should do in the long <laughs> run. Uh, I, as far as college, hmm, I don't think we're really going to know until games resume. I think games are everything. So when Missouri was that 2015 mm-hmm. Missouri, I think so. Yeah, that's uh, the reason that was so effective and so fast was that they were not going to play a game. And I think we saw so many reports at the time that they were going to go, I think they were going to play BYU and it was going to cost a million dollars if they didn't play some, you know, there was like, there was a money value immediately attached to the cancellation of that particular game. And so I don't know what will happen. I don't know. Is college football going to happen at all? I mean, they did play yesterday. So maybe in fact it will, I feel like I'm living in a city where college football will happen at some point, but if something happens that these students decide to not play a game, that will really up the stakes in a way that would be very interesting. They're just, un- I, I don't even understand. These 18, 19 year olds going up against these institutions has got to be a scary thing. There's got to mm-hmm. be a hard thing. Like, I don't, I don't know what I would do as a 40 year old in those positions, uh, the intimidation factor. And, you know, they've grown up their whole lives being told that these men in charge of these teams are good people who care a lot about them and are doing this for their benefit and all these sorts of things. And to go up against that is, you know, it's not just that they're giving up football or they're risking scholarships or any of the, I mean, they're also, there's a real built-in narrative there that they have to work against. Um, I don't know. I'm, I feel like I'm just rambling at this point, but I'm, I feel like college football will happen and it'll probably be as normal as it can be in COVID. And they'll, I will feel a little bit of a disappointment from that, but I'm also won't be surprised because talk about a machine that just keeps on rolling. Yeah. I think, I think when it comes to, um, the NBA, um, I understand where you're coming from, Nathan. I really do. Like, I, I think that if, you know, you, you want to see radical change, then you want to see the radical action and, and, you know, maybe you, you, you'd want to have seen, um, the walkout and the strike last longer than it did. But at the same time, I think that we just, we, we, we've got to understand that these are also just human beings and, and, Jessica's absolutely right. The WNBA has a blueprint for how to do this. And they've been united for frankly years around, around this. And, and, you know, the, the women of the WNBA have always been at the forefront of social change and activism um, in a way that, that the men um, across all sports, frankly, um, have been catching up to, but you know, the, the, the Bucks walkout happened because you know, the, the team got to the arena in Orlando and George Hill, um, who was a player on the Bucks, who is particularly 
moved about, you know, calls for racial justice. And he had reservations heading into the bubble in the first place because he was in that camp that was led by Kyrie Irving of players who didn't want the fact that they were resuming play to distract from the messages of social progress and racial progress. Um, and they got to the arena and he just didn't feel right about playing a game. And this, you know, so I, I can understand why this wasn't more organized or, you know, there were a lot of reports that um, the Orlando magic didn't know. So of course, you know, they took the floor and, and it was awkward, but, but, you know, this is, these are emotional people. These are human beings. And, and, it's it's a lot to expect that they'll have everything kind of planned out um, when when they're reacting to really fluid situations here. When we got the reports that the Clippers and the Lakers that night um, walked out of their the players meeting, the emergency players meeting, and and you know basically said that they would be willing to walk out of the bubble. Um, that was in part an emotional reaction led by LeBron James to the fact that. They're, they didn't really know what else to do. But I do think that it's still a powerful statement, um, you know, because like I, like I mentioned before, Kyrie Irving and a bunch of players did actually threaten to boycott the NBA bubble um, before the season resumed. And the LeBron camp and, and the other side of, of players who understandably did want to play was that our platform is going to be even big, even greater when we actually have games going on. And, and they have, you know, been following the lead of the WNBA in the first question asked after a game in the post-game interview, they redirect that answer to talk about Breonna Taylor, to talk about, uh, Jacob Blake or, 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 you know, uh, to talk about these issues. And then what we saw happen was Kyrie kind of get vindicated, but also LeBron get vindicated because how much more of an impact and of a statement was it that we had an entire two days of playoff games canceled because of, of, because of this, their platform actually was bigger that did bear out. And now we have, you know, owners and the league and these businesses and every financial partner that has something at stake here knows that these players are not messing around. They're not just, you know, threatening to strike and, and they're not actually going to do it. They canceled two days worth of games or postponed two days worth of games. So I, I, I do think that, you know, we, we've, we've got to give credit where credit is due. And then the added element here, especially in the NBA, is that it is just more difficult to find as much unity as there is in the WNBA. And that's for lots of reasons, but a lot of those reasons are financial. There is not, you know, NBA players can't exist in a monolith. They don't make the same kind of money. Um, and, you know, you've got players who couldn't afford really to just walk out of 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 the playoffs and you know they depend on that on those game checks and you've got players who are just trying to establish themselves in the league who um who need to do that and like Jessica said you know the mental health aspect here can't be overstated you know Paul George had said um a, a few several days ago that you know he was really struggling with the isolation of of being in the bubble and you know it was very clearly affecting his game um and, you know, these players have have sacrificed a lot to do that. Um, so sacrificing on the sacrifice to walk out of that is is a lot to ask. And I think that it's just an easier thing for us to expect and for us to sit here and talk about than it is to actually have to be making those decisions. 
Wow. Well, thank you both so much. You really just, I think just like by breaking it down, both at sort of the college level, but also at the pro sport level, sort of what it was that these athletes actually did and how, how do I say, well, while it's like, as you both said, well, it's sort of easier for us to sort of like critique it from like our perspective, right? That these decisions they were making were very both personal, but also kind of collective and sort of how much they really meant both for themselves and their communities. It's just, thank you so much for that. And so sort of now that we have your take on the current athlete activism, we really want to go back to your book. We really want to ask, you know, so where do the fans fit in within all of this? Um, Because, you know, rightfully, I guess rightfully so, a lot of the discussion this summer has been about the athletes and not so much about the fans. Um, And so in the final chapter of of your book, you wrote, quote, and this is a long one, um, but it says, sports loves those who don't push against any of these beliefs. And so it is the actions of those who do that most often um, get told when we tell you the story of how sports and politics overlap. But it's more complicated than that. Although sports often serve as a space of activism and protest, they are also a site of propaganda. There are athletes, both conservative, conservative and progressive, who protest via the platforms afforded them by sports, including the physical space where they play. Wealthy team owners who donate to politicians and lobby for tax rates or subsidies for their teams, fans who use sports as a site for protest, governments who use them as sites for building nationalism, and politicians who use them on the campaign trail. Watching sports will inevitably expose fans to politics as sports and politics constantly become intertwined. How do, we dis- how do we each decide to respond to that reality will vary, but it is a reality we cannot escape no matter how much we desire to do so, end quote. Now, this is a very important observation and one that our listeners may know all too well, but we really want to center fans within this narrative as we feel that the whole politics and sport do not mix is actually a narrative for and about fans. Hmm. So can you walk us through the role of fandom in all this and discuss how fans should be responding to this moment in sport in terms of what responsibilities they might have? Huh. I think this is really complicated in this moment because so I as a fan don't think sports should have come back and I have a lot of conflicted feelings about the fact that they did at the same time they did come back and I can't do anything about that as a single person sitting in my house. I mean, so I could in theory just not watch them and that could be my own form of boycott that maybe would make me feel better. But at some level, I kind of feel like these athletes are sacrificing in real ways in order to play these sports. And I want to watch them to support the athletes. But then I understand that I'm supporting the system. And I don't like where do you resolve that tension? But I do think it's a really good observation that the idea of I mean, sticks to sports is very much fan based right like that's fans shouting at other fans fans shouting at the sports media like that really is where that discussion is happening and i don't know kavitha do you have like where should fans be in this moment i i mean i have a particular feeling around women's sports because i do feel a political ethical moral obligation desire to support them whenever they show up wherever they are even in this moment like to me you're really balancing something there because they always need anything they can get and i and i feel that as a fan um but i still kind of feel like i mean 
men are making a sacrifice too in this moment. But I really hate the system that has made it so that they feel that they must play. Yeah, I mean, I think that the fan question exists in so many different ways in our book, right? Like, like we're we talk about you know, fan, fan relations to other fans that Jessica just mentioned, the stick to sports thing and, you know, kind of berating um, fans for not just letting them live, not just letting them be right, you know, kind of forcing them to think about some of these things that some of us as fans do constantly think about and can't shut that part of our brain off. And then there's the fan to the athlete relationship too. Um, And that exists both in holding athletes accountable, but also in in reevaluating what that relationship is and and why we feel so entitled to things from our athletes to athletes giving interviews and and things like that and and I think that when we're looking at what we're what we're seeing right now is that athletes are demanding basketball players and and black athletes around the sports world are demanding that their owners finally put their money where their mouth is and wield that immense political influence that they have um, to achieve police reform. But they're also demanding that us as fans, and especially white fans, but just as American fans, that we realize that these guys entertain us. And if we want them to continue to entertain us, we have to treat them better as men and as women in this country. And I think that that's an obligation that we do have to listen to that messaging as fans. Um, Then on the other side, I'm also conflicted about this because I also felt really irresponsible about the fact that sports were coming back. And, you know, we can get into a whole discussion about how they have come back, what leagues have done this better, what leagues have done it worse, whether it's taking away from resources for, you know, the, the, broader American public and all of that, the NBA developing a saliva test, which is just this incredible story um, uh, behind that. Um, But at the same time, you know, I'm born and raised in New York and I had been living in LA for the last year, but I, I did Zoom calls with my friends back home at least twice a week. And especially when COVID was first hitting New York in March and April, when it was really bad, but it was also so isolated to New York. And it very much felt like New Yorkers were on we're on our own island when it when it came to this. Um, I remember talking to my friends about it. And again, people who have who who had experienced firsthand the the damages of this virus. And a lot of people said to me, you know, I don't know if it's safe for them to come back, but I just want something to give me a sense of normalcy because everything has been dark for the last for for the last several months. And I I I couldn't be mad at that, you know, even if intellectually I, I think it's irresponsible. That's that's a natural human understandable reaction to a time of crisis. And that highlights why these games and these and these teams are so important to us. But it also highlights exactly that that dilemma about what's right versus what we need or what we want. There's so much that's, um, yeah, I think really insightful what you both said. Uh, and I kind of want to respond to it because this is something that I've thought about in my work. Um, and, you know, I, I think what you've both gestured to is the fact that both athletes 
and fans are caught in a larger structural context, right? Like neither the athlete nor the fan is actually responsible for the system we have. Mm-hmm. And neither of them was really right. in charge. No, no, neither athlete or fan is, was making the decisions here, really. I mean, like some athletes, the unionized athletes had some say to a certain extent in sort of what these protocols might be. But we, we all understand where the power really lay. And it wasn't with them. And obviously fans don't have a say either, although you know, to a certain extent, the, the market that is fandom obviously ha- has some bearing on this, but like, I, I don't want to overstate sort of consumers agency and shaping the system. No, it's like, at the end of the day, we're talking about, you know, capitalism, systems of white supremacy and patriarchy, like these are the overarching forces that are shaping the dynamics and the relationship between players and fans. Um, and so fans are coming to all of this based on their own circumstances, right? And so I think you said this beautifully, Kavitha, like the, right now in a devastating moment of racist violence and economic crisis, uh, and, and that's ignoring the health crisis, people are suffering. Uh, just people just in general, people are suffering. And I've always felt that one of the reasons why sports fandom is so intense is because already people have been suffering in the society we live in. And we live in a very isolating and alienating society. And it's kind of a recurring theme in this conversation, right? But the the pandemic has really underlined and highlighted and exacerbated conditions that were already there. Like now we are literally in our own homes, most of us, or, or many of us, in front of a Zoom call, let's say. And that is clearly fundamentally isolating and alienating. Um, but our lives still had like a, a similar kind of quality before this, although, you know, much less extreme in the alienation that is like living in a kind of capitalist society. So that's what brings fans to, that's one of the things that brings fans to sport. And it makes sense. It's not the fans fault. Like the fans are looking for, fans are looking for meaning and they get it from sport and it's not their fault for that. And then we have athletes on the other hand, who again are doing this work, but they don't control their own working conditions and they're being subjected to very brutal labor, although we constantly code that labor as play, um, but it's very difficult labor that has tremendous takes a tremendous toll on their bodies and has also a deep emotional consequence for them, both during and after their careers. Right? It's hard, in other words. My question, I guess, is: so what of the relationship between the fan and the player? Because that's the thing that I've always felt like I wonder if there's a if there's room for solidarity there. Right, because they're so, we're so separated. Like the fans are, fans are constantly trying to extract something because of what their own deprivation is trying to extract this meaning from the bodies of the players in the way that we've been discussing. Um, and then players often, not always, feel an alienation with respect to fans in that sense because they are aware that they are treated as if they are they're, essentially they're being dehumanized. They understand that they are not being treated as people who are going to work. They're being treated as superhuman or not human in some way. Like that, there's this constant expectation that they provide production even though they're just human bodies doing their best at their jobs and so that makes it very difficult for there to be this kind of solidarity between fans and players in the context of athletic work do you think that i don't know is there space in this moment that we're all living for that to change Hmm. i think one thing that you just hit on is you mean you called it athletic work right and I think most of the time we don't see these athletes as laborers, which is like one of the interesting things about what happened last week was it wasn't like a thrilling conversation, but is this a is this a boycott? Is this a walkout? Is this a strike? Right. And getting the language right. We're not good 
in general in the society about talking about labor. And so it took a while to come around to like what was actually happening here and, and what we should call it. And I don't even know if we've all landed on a comfortable word for it. But I do think we, yeah, I mean, what would solidarity with athletes look like? And I think, I mean, I think seeing them as laborers first is probably the best way to start figuring that out. I, as you were talking, I was thinking, I don't even know what that would look like. What, what would athletes tell us solidarity looks like to them from fans? And I'm not sure that I can answer that question for you without asking them. Um, but certainly recognizing that they are, as you said, doing incredible physical work. That is why we watch them because of that. And I could talk about that a lot because I get such a thrill out of what they're able to do that I cannot do, even though we both, in theory, have similar (laughs) bodies. Uh, But they're also doing incredible mental and emotional work. And that's true just as athletes on the court. Like To be a successful athlete at the level that they're operating just takes a ton of emotional and mental work just for that. And then you layer on, as Kavitha was talking about, Paul George living in the bubble Black athletes dealing with the visual of of this racist violence, the trauma. For some of them, um, Sterling Brown, you know, possibly activating trauma in themselves that they have experienced as Black people in this world and relationship to police violence. And that they're doing all of that then on top of all this other work. So I don't think I have a great answer for you because I'm not sure what athletes would tell us about what solidarity looks like. But I do think thinking of them as working would be a really good start. One thing I'll just tell quickly, I years ago when Charlie Strong was the football coach here at UT, he did a women's uh, football clinic. And I wrote about this for Vice Sports. It was the first thing I ever wrote about there. And I went into it super cynical and I loved it. I actually loved it because they took us all very seriously as fans like they weren't like oh the little ladies are here but one thing i will never forget is there was a panel with college football players and i was impressed by and this is so funny to say that this impressed me but i was impressed by how candid the players were allowed to be about their own personal experiences as football players and the struggles that they have and i'll never forget i want to say it was malcolm brown and he so there were a lot of it was women and so a lot of mothers and they kept asking these players like what do I tell my child who wants to play football about how to succeed in football? And I'll never forget that he just kept saying, when you get to this level, it's your job. So love it now because it becomes your job. And he was so adamant and he just kept reiterating this. And it was so, I don't want to say cynical, but it was so real in a space where you're supposed to be like, my hopes and my dreams are being answered at this place. And we have all these like really lofty narratives around sport. And he just kept cutting through that with to to remind everyone in the room, I'm doing a job now. And that is how I think of it. And there was just, I I felt like I was getting slapped in the face, (laughs) like with like knowledge in those moments. And I will just never forget that. And I don't know what those other women, other women in the room took from that, but it had a real impact on me. So I think that's a long answer to your question, just to say that thinking of them as laborers, I think, is a real like that that would go a long way. Yeah, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. It has 
it has been a long frustration in my career that that fans essentially vote against their own interests, right? Most fans, most sports fans are not captains of industry. They're not, you know, they're not in the 1%. The average sports fan is the average American, is a worker. And not being able to identify with the fact that within the paradigm of sports, players are workers, are 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 labor. They're not management, right? Um, and even if they're making hundreds of thousands to millions, tens, millions, tens of millions of dollars a year, they are still labor and the management, the owners are making billions of dollars off of them. So, you know, it's always extremely frustrating to me whenever fans talk about contracts and overpaid players and how they make so much money in order to make a game. This is the way capitalism works in America. <laughs> like, you know, mm-hmm. if it like you're 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 misdirecting your anger in in that in that in that construct. But I also I'll always remember um you know, when when I I come from a sports business background, so when I was writing sports for Bloomberg, um, we did a, a poll um, about concussions in football, and the poll was you know obviously broken down by demographics. And one of the questions was, "Do you want? Are would you send your kid to play pee wee football or to play football in high school and then in college, whatever? Um, do you feel comfortable or safe doing that?" And overwhelmingly, um, people said no. And in particular, the people within the de- within the higher income demographics, people who made six figures, had more than a college degree, lived in expensive cities, all of that. Um, these people said overwhelmingly were white. Um, these people said, no, we do not want our kids to play football. The very next question was, do you still want to watch football? And these exact same people said, yes. So I don't want my kids to do it. I have the privilege to not have to send my kids to play football, but I want to watch someone else's kid get beaten up for my entertainment. And when until we reconcile the fact that that is our relationship to these players, we're not going to actually be able to show them any solidarity. Um, but I also do agree with what Jessica said, which is I don't know what that would look like. And I would want to hear that from them. Yeah. And, you know, you all just made me think so much. And so there are like a few things that you said that I want to kind of point out. I mean, one, of course, you're showing how like how differentiated fans are, right? It's not like we're ever talking about like one singular fan base, right? They're like class differences, racial differences, gender, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But I, you know, this, this, this point about like what are athletes, what are athletes telling their fans, right? And so Jessica, your thing about how the football player at this clinic said, you know, this is a job and trying to really frame it as like, this is part of like, this is a labor action that we're doing. Um, And, you know, I'm I'm thinking, you know, what would it take for athletes, A, to be in a position where they could actually be like truly honest about what they wanted fans to think about in terms of them as like athletes in the sport in a way that's like an equitable way? Like, what would it take for that situation to arise? And then, of course, like how would fans react? And of course, that's like the the question that we we kind of know. We hope that it won't be as bad as like we think that it might be. Um, but, you know, and I also think, you know, of course, like how much of this action, this activism this summer, it, you know, is the athlete saying like, please listen to us. You know, like I think it's just this fr- these frustrations and this pain and trauma is just kind of like bubbling over for them. And they're like, please listen to us. Like, yes, these actions are for our in our communities, but they're also like, they're trying to get all these messages across to fans. Um, 
which I mean, which is like, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, I think it's even simpler. I think I, they, yes, they want them to listen, but on some level, they just want them to see them. Mm-hmm. Like, I think when you're, when you're talking about, you know, what they want from fans, I think fans are racist a lot of the time. And so it depends on what athletes are talking to them. And I, I'll never forget Nat- Natalie Weiner was on a WNBA podcast and they were asking her about um, this, like how there's all this backlash to the WNBA all the time, which of course is rooted in sexism, racism, and homophobia all at once. And they asked her about the fact that basketball players, NBA players are huge fans of the WNBA. And why doesn't that cross over? And she's like, because fans of the NBA are racist. (laughs) And so they don't actually want to hear what NBA players care about. Like there are, you're already working against the sexism and homophobia with the WNBA, but the, like the, the racism is so endemic. And so on some level, I just think they're like, please see the pain. Like just, we are in pain. So, uh, I mean, it's so basic. I mean, a lot of what you guys are asking us, the answers are like so basic on some level. And that I think is where a lot of the frustration in our, you can hear it in our voices, right? Um, because it seems like the am- answers are so simple. And of course, they're not. The simple things are very complicated in, in, in material reality. Well, and it also just has to do with how we view labor and in in particular, black labor. And when you're talking about the WNBA, black women labor. Um, you know, these, this idea that I, I always go back to this idea that, you know, fans, fans don't seem to be as angry at these owners as they are at these players. And mm-hmm. there's obviously racism is probably the biggest reason for that. Um, you know, there's a, 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 a mentality that these are, these are mostly black men from and women from poor neighborhoods who would not you know they got out of the hood because they were good at sports basically and sure that is true a lot of the time but the uh, the 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 next step in that thinking for a lot of these fans is that they don't deserve to have the same kind of rights that other worker other types of workers do that they are lucky to have been in that position instead of as Jessica mentioned that they have put in so much work to be the best at what that they at, at what they do and then there's the mentality that frankly every it's it's just ingrained in us in american society that you know we see billionaires and entrepreneurs as deserving of of their status and their wealth because they worked harder but that same mentality doesn't seem to translate to the laborers who work as hard as or if not harder, to make the kind of money and to reach the the upper echelons of their industries, um, and then there's there's the added aspect of, you know, shut up and dribble doesn't exist without like that doesn't exist in a vacuum. That is just mm-hmm. in itself just a racist notion, right? And it's coming from this same place as stick to sports. It's essentially what that means, which is, you know, you should just be entertaining us. You should feel lucky for having the privilege of entertaining us and being paid to do so. And we don't want to hear anything else from you. We don't want, we don't want you to be fully formed human beings um, who have emotions and react to racist violence and are the victims of racist violence. Um, And, you know, I, I, Jessica brought up Sterling Brown, which is a great example, a player on the Bucks who a couple of years ago was accosted 
by the police and, and was tased. And there's video of that. I always think about uh, Thabo Cephalosha, mm-hmm. however many years ago that was. Um, you know, we, we go beyond the NBA. We go to James Blake um, before yeah. one of the U.S. Opens one year. Um, and James Blake, you know, I know that we talk, we've talked so much in the last several years about how it doesn't matter if you are an Ivy League educated, you know, one of the good ones, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Blake just is, is you know, the, the most palatable, <laughs> I think, that a, a, a Black person can be to white America. Um, he plays tennis. <laughs> um, you know, but Masai Ujiri, you know, the video of, of what actually happened between Masai Ujiri and, 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 and that sheriff um, after, after uh, the Raptors won the NBA, the NBA championship, you know, he, he was saying basically, he, he said after that happened and after that video came out, you know, I recognize that I am in a privileged position as the president of the Toronto Raptors. He makes a lot of money. He can afford to fight this sheriff, this legal battle. He can afford, you know, he's got all of the resources and the support of the team and all of that. And he just wanted everyone else to know that most black people in America do not have that privilege. And they, but at the same time, that privilege did not stop a cop from assaulting Masai Ujiri five seconds after he won an NBA title. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't know what it's going to, what it's actually going to take. I do think that, you know, the more, the more white allies, the more white players stand up and try to, um, and try to rearticulate what their, what their black colleagues have been telling them about their real lived experience in America. I think that that's one of the main ways that we're going to reach fans. Um, you know, on top of the idea that it just can't be the burden of every black person in America to teach white people why they should be humanized. Um, so I don't know, that is a really long and rambling answer to say I have no idea how we actually achieve solidarity between fans and players. No, no, no. I think that was excellent. It just in terms of showing, I mean, you're both showing how complicated it is, right? And it, there's so many different levels. And I guess one thing that I wanted to go back to, Kavintha, that you brought up was this, I, this, this idea of like fan, like fans voting against their interests. And I'm like torn because on the one level, on like a class level, like, yes, they are. But like for white fans on a racial level, as you all have been talking about, like, no, they're not. And I and I remember in, in grad school, I t- I'm, I'm not an American historian, but in grad school, I had to TA for this like big American history class. And one of the big things that we that we taught students was how like poor whites in the South, rather than sort of rather than ally with like enslaved and, and informally informally enslaved people after the Civil War, where they had these like real class and economic shared interest that they much preferred to ally with like the white um, sort of the, 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 the managers, right. So that the wealthy whites in their community, because they, because they, they felt like they needed someone like a way to kind of a, a racial differentiation, a way to kind of distance themselves. Right. And this is obviously not like a unique argument, um, but I just, you know, I guess that's one thing that I really struggle with. And again, that goes to your point about needing white allies is that we really, really do, um, and also white allies is sort of what turned uh, white people in favor of the civil rights movement, right? This sort of always ends up being what needs to happen. Um, 
Um, and when we had our sort of de- ep- like last minute episode about the protests the other night, um, that was one of the things that like I said was like, we need white allies in every sport. And like I said, sw- I was a swimmer. And so I know swimming best and like Simone Manuel is like, begging people like we need white allies like I cannot be the only one and it's just something that we're just hearing over and over again so like that's definitely an excellent point to bring up well yeah I mean and that's also like everything that you just mentioned is by design right I mean like after after the civil war basically the the strategy of um whatever, like American oligarchs, essentially, of of the textile planter banker class in the South was to was to create um, racial divides instead of having a class based uprising because they realized uh, what they were actually up against there. And it's worked. And we've been living with that legacy for 250 years now. And that there's Mm -hmm. no reason that that wouldn't translate to sports either. Right. Um, But even even if we, I'm not saying we should set aside race, like, you know, obviously, (laughs) but even if we look beyond just ways in which race causes people to vote against or fans to root against their own self-interest, this, this happens in so many other ways. This happens, you know, this happens just with our tax dollars. This happens, you know, we have a whole chapter in, in this book about stadium subsidies. And I always go back to, you know, Scott Walker, slashing the University of Wisconsin system by, I want to say $500 million, and then giving the Milwaukee Bucks $400 million to go build an arena. Um, and, And that is something that even like even conscientious sports fans could tell you, if if my team threatens to leave my city, I want my tax dollars to go toward keeping them there. Even if you even if you present them with all of this data that they don't actually that it's an empty threat and they don't actually need that money from the government. They you know, there's still something about about these games, about sports that that make people that desperate. Um, and And that's also extremely frustrating to see. And I say that as, you know, as a diehard Yankee fan, being a Yankee fan is very much a part of my of my identity and of my existence. But at the same time, I don't think that we should have been, the team should have been given a billion dollars by the city to build a stadium. Um, You know, that's, that's, that's just where I land on that. Well, so, I mean, this, this raises what might be the hardest question kind of to emerge from both this conversation and your book itself, um, which is so each chapter of the book, focuses on a different form of harm that sport might do um, to those involved, observers, participants, others. So for instance, there are chapters about consuming sports media, even if you don't like the people on TV, how to root for a team when the star is accused of domestic violence, how do you fill out a bracket, even though you know the players are being uh, viciously exploited, how do you cheer for a team with a racist mascot, how do you enjoy the Olympics when they harm your community, Uh, and on and on. The example of stadiums is just another great example. Um, and these are issues that are obviously uh, about as important, like are absolutely critically important, and I think resonate with most of our listeners on a show like this. Uh, it's going to be different if you're on ESPN Radio, but uh, on the End of Sport podcast, that's going to resonate with our listeners. <laughs> so, my question is, how do you respond to folks who might say that actually these things are so bad that, quite frankly, it's not actually worth it at all that sport is doing so much harm that really there is no ethical form of fandom that's possible at all. That really what we need to be working 
for is away from high performance sport in the way that we know it, because there just is no reconciling it at all. Um, and so like another way of saying this, because I understand, and I think, you know, most of our listeners would understand too, um, but there's also no question that fandom does shape identity, exactly as you've been saying. It shapes identity and it produces deep emotional responses that are nearly impossible to shake. I feel this personally. So I'm not like, I, I genuinely feel this. Um, and, and also that fandom itself, for many people, the most diehard fans is really, I would say, not really so much a choice as a function of socialization. The majority of the people that feel deeply invested, it's not because when they were 20 years old, they thought like, you know, it's actually pretty fun to watch basketball on TV. So I'll pick a team and kind of get into it. That's not really where that incredibly deep attachment comes from. It's a lifelong affiliation often that comes from socialization. And therefore, there's not a lot of choice really involved in that. But that doesn't make it right per se. So the big question is, is ethical fandom actually possible? And what might it look like? So are you saying that we should burn it all down? And start over, Nathan. Uh, <laughs> I would never say anything like that. Um, Not to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think uh, first I would say good luck uh, doing that. But I would get the impulse. Like, I'm not going to. I don't think that that's a bad impulse to have. There is so much that is unethical, especially in how pro sports and I'm including college in that, especially for the um, sports that make a lot of money. Uh, there's so much that is unethical and it is so deeply systemic that it is really hard to imagine how you it, it's like it's it's kind of on level the I see it with um, prison or like police abolition versus reform. Like I get both of them. I understand why people want both of those things for the reasons that they do but the people who are like reform is not possible and people will keep being murdered until we have abolition i get that and i so i don't know if i have a great answer for you i don't think that there's much ethical fandom within capitalism in general and i think that's true for a whole bunch of pop culture not just in sport uh sport does have its own specific flavor of fandom as you're talking about the way it's tied to identity we we um talk about this in the intro and conclusion of the book that uh there's so much around sports fandom that you might not find in other places including people's community right they find community in that they deeply identify with the teams because it's related to the place that they're from. It has something to do with generationally in their family. There's all kinds of stuff that go into sports fandom that maybe they don't have around pop, you know, like pop music or something. But man, can you be an ethical fan? I don't, I don't know. And I, and I think a lot of what our book is, is asking is asking that question of people asking them to really take a hard look at what it means to be a sports fan. and. I would guess that some people will feel implicated at points in time while reading the book. And we probably should feel implicated as fans because we are a part of the system, even if we aren't ultimately the overall movers. We're not the billionaire owners. We aren't the people running the NCAA or the IOC or FIFA or, or whatever. Um, but yeah, I maybe maybe there isn't an ethical fandom. But I think that's true in so much of the stuff that we consume within our culture because 
because we're capitalists. And what I what do you do with that? I don't know. I don't know. That's that's kind of <clears throat> excuse me. That's that's where I land on this is that I do think ethical fandom is achievable. I also often think that whenever we have discussions like this, especially in uh, an academic or an intellectual setting, it's always couched in in classism and it's always couched in who are the arbiters of what is acceptable enough, what it, what contributes enough to society to overlook the bad things. Um, so, so the way I'll put that is, you know, cancel culture or whatever, you know, that term used to mean before it was um, co-opted um, can apply to athletes. It can apply to musicians. It can apply to actors. Um, you know, the, the former conductor of the New York Philharmonic. Um, and, and I think that we are more over will, we are more willing to overlook the bad things of things that we have deemed as a society constitute high art or um you know contribute something in a in a space that isn't just sports do you know what i mean um you know like i'll i'll i always say there is a reason that michael jackson is canceled but jackson pollock isn't um and you know i i think that when we single out sports we put it in a lower rung of what actually of what we consider to contribute to society than other aspects of, of consumption or pop culture that are just as problematic, though in slightly different ways. But within if, if you look at sports within the, the country and within the system that it exists, you know, there are certainly many ways where sports stand alone, where sports get special exemptions. Um, MLB is antitrust exempt, all kinds of all kinds of that stuff exists. But so much of what we actually have an issue with in sports is just an issue with our society. Um, I'll give you an example on a, on a, kind of granular level when Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers um the Financial Times came out with a with a with a piece about how he was able to parlay that purchase into a 2 billion dollar tax write off essentially he bought the team for 2 billion dollars and then saved two taxes on 2 billion dollars of of assets um and and the way that the FT put this and and granted these are British journalists trying to understand American tax law which is <laughs> a whole beast in itself right the way that they put this was there was a special exemption in the tax code for sports teams that that allowed him to that was a loophole that allowed him to take advantage of this now i completely understand where they understood where they were coming from those exemptions and those loopholes absolutely do exist for sports in, in many ways but in this particular case, there was, I, I, I did a very deep dive into the tax code. Again, I wrote for Bloomberg at the time, so it made sense for my readers. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, I did a very deep dive into the tax code. And that exception that they pointed to was not actually specific to sports. This was specific to any kind of an acquisition of a company or a business Um at, at this level. So, you know, yes, like we can, we can talk about the ethics about, you know, whether Steve Ballmer should be getting that tax break to begin with, but then we have to talk about that just within, within our economic system that, that, you know, that is a problem that exists in our tax code in the way that we treat, that we treat assets in the way that the system is geared toward the wealthy and actually isn't 
a, a, a special carve out for a sports team. You know, so I think that that was just that's just one example of, you know, how so many of these things that we talk about and these issues that we raise in sports. The reason we're using sports is because it's just a good lens to um, to view these issues. But these issues exist so far beyond sports. Um that I think that, you know, if you ask the question, which, again, I completely understand where it comes from. But if you ask the question of, well, should we just cancel sports? Well, then we, we've, we've got to cancel everything. We've got to cancel Amazon. You know, we've got to cancel. Um, we've got to cancel Hollywood. Um, you know, so so do we just get rid of all of these things or do we understand that the system is broken all around and then try to fix that in order and hoping that that has a, a trickle down effect on the individual industries we're talking about? Yeah, well, that, that's a really interesting kind of reframing of the question. Um, and so it's, it's it kind of got me sparking off of it. Um, so I, first of all, I absolutely agree with you that sport is um treated as a form of low culture uh there's no question about that and so i mean that's so that's true in any any side of our society if it's dealt with in the academy it's treated as a low form of culture not taken seriously um i i think that's absolutely right and so uh, i can see how it becomes sort of it's, it's sort of dismissed as a consequence of that but the flip side of it is also for those of us who do uh, you know i think i think i can safely say all of us in this conversation we take sport really seriously. Uh, we don't dismiss it for that reason. And actually, one of the reasons why we take it so seriously is because it is so popular, right? And it's disparaged for its popularity, but also its popularity means that it is one of the best ways into these conversations that you're having throughout the book, right? Conversations about the social structure more broadly. Um, they, they, uh, it, it's, it invites people to think about something they care about and then how it is, in fact, connected to a broad, all these broader systems. So, I mean, you're, you're obviously right, in other words, that um, you can't separate the labor problems in sport from labor problems in, ca in capitalism in the United States. Like the Amazon example is beautiful for that. Um, you're right. Like we, we definitely should be canceling Amazon, um, incidentally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, let's do that. Um, but uh, I guess the, the thing I wanted to then say, though, to one of the here's the trickier parts, because that's a really that's a good way of kind of. Um, I think, as I said, reframing the conversation. And I think it's challenging because it, it kind of means, I think in some ways the answer then is, all right, we have to use the problems that we see in sport as a vehicle for mobilizing around these problems more broadly. And that, that will in turn affect sport and it will affect society more broadly. And I think that's right. That's, that's how I would view it too. We could never have uh, an ethical sport in a capitalist and racist society. Like that's not, that's never going to happen. I think that's what you're saying too. Um, but then there's a really tricky part that I, I kind of want to come to, because like, let's talk about football for a second. Football is a sport that is just fundamentally harmful. And you outline that in, in your chapter on the, on the subject, but the, the harm caused by football is profound. And it's not just the professional players. It's at the youth level. Uh, kids are playing football at the age of five. Now, the reason why people are subjected to this harm cannot be separated from the broader social structure. I think that that's essential to say, like the actual consent to participate in football and families enrolling their children in football has everything to do with the fact that we live in such uh, an incredibly stratified society. The opportunities are so stratified that uh, it absolutely makes sense. It's a rational decision for people to enroll children in football because it opens up doors that are slammed shut. And that's the real problem. The real problem is the fundamental inaccessibility of higher education because of its cost and all sorts of other factors. Um, and just generally speaking, racial disparities in wealth, 
uh, everything. I mean, like the United States is an absolute disaster. Uh, and, and that's reflected then in the participation in football, which is this deeply valued cultural practice and also a site of economic opportunity. But it comes at an unbelievably profound cost to almost everyone who participates in it, especially if they participate in it for a long time, which means to me, like, even though the causal factors are not about sport per se, necessarily, I mean, the sport is a problem in its own right. We can't solve the causal factors by ending football, but can we ever justify a sport that causes that level of violence and harm that is predicated on sacrifice? Can we justify football? Uh, in my case, you're asking the wrong person because I don't watch football anymore uh, for lots of reasons. It originally started with my journalism around gendered violence in the sport, but I also have a, I just have a hard time with the brain trauma and the body, the damage to the body, knowing especially this is as true on the this is more true on the collegiate level, but still functions on the professional one as well, that their their healthcare isn't going to be extended for their whole life, right? We live in a country without that safety net, which again goes to your point that there are so that the problems here are so much bigger than football. They just come out in in football. Um I mean, one of the things we're seeing now with this this like demand to play, all these parents who are like, my my children have to play because they have to go to college because that's how they're going to get a scholarship. And I actually, I feel a lot of empathy for that. Like if that really is the only way they can go to college, then I, that sucks. But that, that is a bigger problem than, than football. Um, I will say, so I have all the, I, I personally don't consume it anymore, except for my job when I, when I feel like I need to, in order to be able to talk about it kind of thing. I will say though that in the book, in the in the chapter on brain trauma, we talked to our friend Joel Anderson, who played football all through his youth. And then I think he jokes about he rode the bench for TCU for his <laughs> freshman year. And, you know, Joel writes for Slate. He used to work for ESPN. He is a deep thinker on all things sports. And he makes me pause around this because when I ask him, would you go back and not do it? He would go back and do it all because he really feels deeply in his bones that football gave him so much of what is good in his life and what it meant to him in, as a child, his connection to his father, all these things that, what do I do with that? Nathan, like, what do I do with that? And I don't, mm -hmm. I don't honestly know. And so I don't disagree with you about so much of what's wrong. Like one of the things I think is interesting, um, Kathleen Baczynski, who wrote a book, God, I wish I could remember the name. It's so good. It's about this exact thing. Brain trauma, youth. No game for boys to play. Thank you. Um, we had her on Burn It All Down to talk about it, but I heard her talking in um about this on a panel here at ut a couple of years ago and there was so much of like we have to keep playing football because football gives us all this good stuff and i don't know if she's gonna be mad at me for this or not but afterwards i was talking to her about like our frustration with that like football's good and she said you know she always wants to respond like then why don't you let girls do it 
Like, why is it? Why? Why have you sectioned off this particular sport that's so good in so many ways? And you'll tell us about it till the end of time. But only certain people get access to it. If it's that great, then then why is it set up this way? Um, so there's so much wrong there. So it's not like I disagree with you. But then I talk to my then I talk to Joel and I hear the emotion in his voice and and hear what this has meant to him on, on an individual level. And I don't is it my place to disagree with that? I don't, I don't know. Again, complicated. I don't, I wish I don't have answers for you. I'm just here to speculate out loud. <laughs> That's what I feel like. <laughs> but yeah, I just I, say quickly, Cause I want to hear from Kathy very much, but I just want to say we love Kathleen on this show. Kathleen has been on our show. Uh, yeah, that was a terrific great. anecdote. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that the most that we can hope for um, is especially as journalists, that we continue to just put all of the information about how dangerous this game is out there and, you know, understand that these athletes have agency and have the right to to make, to decide to, to play a sport that is dangerous. And I think that, you know, a lot of them are extremely um, realistic about that part of it. Um, also understanding that, you know, if they're, you know, there are, um, educational pressures. If it's the only, if it's the only pathway to a scholarship, if it's the only pathway toward, um, you know, income mobility and, and, and everything like that, like that, those are pressures and those are forces that do impact those decisions that are being made. Um, obviously, but if we, if we continue to work toward fixing those things societally, I, I agree with Jessica and I've had the same conversation with Joel is that you will still have players making the informed decision to play football. Um, and, and I can't, I might disagree with that. I wouldn't want to play football. I wouldn't want, um, uh, my boyfriend to play football, but I can't tell somebody that, you know, I, I can't lecture to somebody in like a paternalistic way that this is bad for them. They know that, you know, they're, they're not dumb. They're, they're making, they're making that decision. And, you know, I do think that I, I, I don't want it to seem as though we don't acknowledge all of the good that sports actually does do. It, it, it can be overstated and it's very much used for propaganda. Um, but, you know, like we were talking about identity, like for me, especially as like a, a, a daughter of immigrants, you know, sports for me has been very much a part of my feeling American and my participating in American society. And, and that, you know, that exists in it uh, across all kinds of subgroups. So, you know, I, I do want to acknowledge that we do get a lot out of out of these games, um, whether we play them or watch them. But yeah, it's it's really it is a really difficult conversation to have, because, again, I do think that, you know, if you if if you made all of those things equal, if you made it so that there weren't economic pressures to play football, people would still choose to play football. Yeah, no, I, you know, I really appreciate that, that point and that, you know, to, to really, to, to do away with it all, there needs to be so much more like bigger, um, sort of restructuring of our society, right? Like we need to actually provide like equitable educational opportunities, and, like other cultural opportunities so that different subgroups of people have ways to sort of connect with their American identity or their community identity or sort of whatever it is in a way that doesn't obviously cause all this harm. Um, I mean, we are where we are for a reason. Um, but I, but I really appreciate your point. 
And you know, now we're going to ask sort of a, a very similar question, but kind of transition to talking about the Olympics, which is something that like I'm not much of like a sports fan, except for like the Olympics. I, I really love the Olympics. So this is something that mm-hmm. is a little bit more personal to me. And you cover this in the penultimate chapter of the book. And a couple months ago, we had the really wonderful Jules Boykoff on the show, and he made really compelling arguments that the Olympics are just so fraught with harm that perhaps we need to consider canceling them, which some of us on the show think should be a permanent move. And in this chapter, it says, quote, if we are to imagine a world without the Olympics or the World Cup as they currently function, that we must figure out how and what to do with all the sports, teams and athletes that rely on that platform for support and to generate resources. We, as sports fans and as citizens of the world, need to think beyond the accepted storyline about mega events served up by the IOC and FIFA. This is imperative. Now, we'd love for you to expand a bit on your thoughts about the Olympics and governing bodies of sport like the IOC and FIFA. And again, to kind of ask the same question we asked before about the Olympics, um, considering all the harm done by these governing bodies and by the actual games themselves and the World Cup, to what extent do you all think they're worth salvaging at all? Hmm. Well, shout out to Jules. Hi, Jules. He's a good <laughs> Jules, listener, Jules I featured heavily in, in the book also. <laughs> yeah, Jules is wonderful. Um, and Jules is really, I mean, I've, I've known him for years now, and he really shaped a lot of my thinking on this and really, you know, pushed me as a fan of the Olympics to think about all the harm that's being done all the time to host these mega events. And I will say that the Olympics is still a place that I, as a fan, find. I don't know. I don't know. I love the Olympics and I feel really bad about that now. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I do think it is, if we are going to get rid of it, which I, again, understand people who want to get rid of it because it does so much material harm to people's lives. And I mean, Rio and Brazil are going to, they're going to be dealing with the Olympics and the World Cup for a long time. I mean, these are long term effects uh that what how do you there is no real justification for it i don't i don't want to sit here and and try but but there's the but after i said that i it matters so much to women's sports and women's sports i mean talk about like the good that sports does for people's lives there's all kinds of studies to the point like the un has taken up the importance of getting girls into sport, right? Because that's like such an important part of development and, and again, making girls feel part of a community and giving them support, right? Sport is so important. And we know that in the capitalist world that we live in, the Olympics and the World Cup, those stages, that there is a direct line between women doing well there and then getting support afterwards. And I think it sucks that that's how it is. And we would really have to think about how to continue to support women's sports if we were to get rid of the Olympics or the World Cup. Um, So I'm not, it's not like I'm against that idea because I definitely, definitely feel like I get it. They're bad. And I I really hope that when people read this book, they haven't already, I mean, Jules has written books on this. If you haven't already read Jules's books, um, that you get that, that like there is no real justification for these when you look at the harm that they're doing. But I would feel like we are really sacrificing women's sports in a real mm-hmm. detrimental way that 
as someone who cares deeply about girls and women getting access to sport, we have to figure out how we would fill that hole if that's the choice that we're going to make. Yeah, I Jessica and I have been asked this particular question quite a few times um, in talking about the book. And and that's always how we answer is that I completely understand where it comes from. But the reality of it is, is that, you know, the Olympics are kind of the only showcase for women's sports outside of tennis, soccer, um, and basketball. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, you know, like there's so many women athletes in this country and throughout the world who participate in, in archery and gymnastics and, you know, go down the line of all of the Olympic sports that would never have a showcase and would never have um, funding beyond funding, like government funding for you know, the bodies that run their sports for to have more girls uh, participating in them if it weren't for the Olympics. Um, and that that sucks, as Jessica said, that really that 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 sucks that that's the reality. I'll also say that, you know, Jessica brings up the UN and and I think it's it's really easy to be cynical about this point. But we really have seen evidence that when women and girls get more access to sports in their countries, they get more access to democracy and freedoms in those countries as well. And, you know, listen, Saudi Arabia is still obviously an extremely oppressive society, but it was not a coincidence that in before the 2012 games, when the IOC finally forced Saudi Arabia to send a woman to the Olympics for the first time, um, that was around the same time that, that, women in Saudi Arabia in Saudi Arabia were first allowed to drive. Um, you know, these are it is it's difficult to separate those those things. Um, so, yeah, I don't know how. Again, this is one of those like like what what is it? How much is too much? When is enough enough? What how does one how does the good outweigh the bad if it does? Is reform even po- even possible if we're talking about FIFA um, reform? reform is possible but obviously not under um the efforts of reform that they've undertaken since 2015 and i'll just go back to every column i've ever written about this and say you need to hire women to to run fifa because honestly there have been a couple of watchdogs from within the organization who were women who saw the writing on the wall and none of their recommendations were taken and then you know we had a a long drawn out scandal about it so um (laughs) i i I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I get where that comes from. But um, I, I don't know how we would actually fill that gap. And and again, I think that there have been, you know, for, for better or for worse, the Olympics and, and the World Cup do at least expose these things that that we know are wrong in, in the world. And, you know, most of our book is very America centric. But obviously, when we're talking about the World Cup and the Olympics, um, you know, you go to geopolitics. Um, but at the same time, I also I also love the Olympics. Like the only sport I was ever good at was figure skating. Like, um, you know, it's it's like I it's 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 great. Um, it's I think it's it's accessible to to different types of sports fans in a way that you don't see um, with certain individual sports. And and also, you know, I I very much feel that conflict. I would never want New York to host an Olympics because I, of the damage I know that it would do to my city. Um, but I would really love to go to an Olympics and that's hard to reconcile. 
I think the other thing I'll say about this is that like, you'll never get me defending FIFA or the IOC in any way at all. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote a piece last year at the end of the World Cup saying that women's soccer in general should drop FIFA, that FIFA has literally never done anything for them, that they haven't been completely forced to do and they do as little as they can as um, every single time. The other thing that, and I don't, I would say, and I haven't said this publicly anywhere, I would say that one thing in the book that I maybe we should have addressed more directly is disabled athletes mm-hmm. and, and what it means to like talk about loving sports when they don't love you back. And I don't know what happens to the Paralympics mm-hmm. and yeah. we don't have, I, uh, spoiler alert for burn it all down. We will soon have a couple interviews with d- disabled athletes. Um, and fantastic. And one thing about that is the NCAA has no infrastructure for this. So where where did those athletes go? And maybe maybe we can have a Paralympics of the Olympics. I don't know. But again, really difficult conversations like who gets left behind athletically if we decide that we can't put on these mega events for very good, legitimate, correct reasons. Uh, we as again, we'd have to, as a society, we'd have to figure out those those holes that we have. And uh I don't know. We well, but have problems, yeah, I mean, man. <laughs> that this this particular part of the conversation really does expose how 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 many of these things just need to be addressed at the societal level that um you know we can examine them through sports but we can't fix them through just getting rid of or or reforming sports, right? And I always think of, you know, especially when it comes to a host city um, and the economic and, and structural damage that that does. Um, I always remember when Boston was vying for the Olympics, um, I had a friend who worked for for the city at the time, and he said, off the record, you know, listen, we, we understand that hosting an Olympics is not is not the moneymaker that everyone sells it as. Like, we were, we're very realistic about that. But we have been trying to fix the public transit system in Boston for decades. And the only way that the state of Massachusetts will unlock funding for that, for those renovations that we need is if we host an Olympics, that sucks. (laughs) But that, but I understood where he was coming from. Like, like if, if you are actually just on a policy level, trying to get something done for the good of your city and the system is built such that you have to host a mega event for that. That obviously means the system is broken. But in the immediacy, um, I understand why you would want to host the Olympics to fix your transit system. So, again, these are just so these are so much bigger issues than than just, you know, one one set of Olympic Games or, or one international tournament. You know, these really does all of these things really do speak to things that need to be fixed on a macro level. Yeah. Yep. No, I think that's, that's really compelling. Um, and so, I mean, we've covered so much ground here uh, and we really appreciate it. This has been, uh, for me, a really enjoyable conversation and an important one, I think. And one we, we actually haven't delved into as much as, as perhaps we could have so far, the question of fandom side and how it links up to sports. So this has been a really a, a wonderful opportunity to, to discuss this with both of you. And I want to end it with kind of like just making it as personal as possible. This is, this is something that you've both engaged kind of throughout our conversation so it's not not like this is the first time we're coming to it but maybe as a final reflection you know the title of the book is loving sports when they don't love you back um and so that obviously tells telegraphs the fact that you know you do love sports um and you obviously want them to be something positive in the world as you've discussed 
And then at the same time, you're writing this book that is real, that is very critical of sport and identity and fandom. So, you know, frankly, it's not just like, it sounds like we're, you know, we're asking this question because um, you wrote this particular book, but actually we love to ask this question of most of our guests because it is sort of an interesting thing if you were critical about sport and also love sport. Um, the question is kind of how do you manage to navigate those dual roles in your work and also kind of emotionally in your life, et cetera? I feel like poorly a lot of the time. I like the story I always tell is I love tennis. That's my favorite sport. And I don't want to know anything like uh, there's just been news recently that Novak Djokovic has broken with the ATP and it's going to form his own men's only players union. And I don't like Djokovic for lots of reasons. And I was like, do I do I learn more about this? Like, is this just going to piss me off? Is this going to affect my ability to watch the U.S. Open as a fan? I'm going to be mad the whole time. And I've really wavered. I've read a little bit. But so sometimes I do like I just, you know, plug my ears, close my eyes and just try to not take it in. At the same time, I don't know how I don't know how to be a fan without being a critical fan. And one thing I that we really hope people get in reading the book is like we really love sports. Like we love sports so much that we wrote a whole book about them. <laughs> we uh, literally can talk about them forever, as you have witnessed now. And we love watching them, and we want them to be better. And so sometimes it is you you know you hold your nose and 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 you watch sometimes i don't watch i said i don't watch football anymore i gave it up um i just i don't know so i like watch the olympics and feel bad about it but also love it at the same time and you just i think so much of it is learning to just sit with mixed emotions and be i don't know not necessarily be okay with that but just hold those things at the same time. I think this a lot about, um, I write a lot about gendered violence and people always want there to be like the right answer to it. And sometimes I think like you just kind of have to be uncomfortable and you don't always know all the answers and that doesn't feel great all the time. But if we're really going to fix the issues around this, we just have to be willing to hold both of those things at once. And so I don't have any great advice for anyone um obviously i'm like a three-year-old when it comes to t sports i love like la, la 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 i can't hear you uh so i don't know man i just I, I couldn't imagine not having sports in my life so if this is what i have to do to do that then here we are yeah just what i'll what i'll say is read the stuff about Djokovic, and it's gonna piss you off and then go read andy murray's response i know so. <laughs> I, that is i did see that andy murray was good again and i'm just like thank you andy, andy for existing andy yes he's the only he is he is the saving grace of men's tennis for really you know? i mean one of the things I, we have a chapter on tennis and we interviewed soraya mcdonald who's a new tennis fan in the last few mm -hmm. years so it's like how do you stand it like how did you come into the sport as a black woman and she said i, I hope i think this made it and it's so funny I can't even remember it's in the book, but she doesn't watch the men's tour at all. She's like, I'm a tennis misandrist. And I was like, oh, <laughs> yes, that's how you do it. Yeah. <laughs> but Andy Murray does save it. I'm very happy he's back. So sorry. Yeah, no, no I, it's no 100 percent, though. But that's that's like, you know, we're kind of joking, but we're also really not because, you know, for every five like 
Djokovic is, if there is an Andy Murray, then there's there's some saving grace there, right? And we're very grateful for for the Andy Murrays of the world. I think for me personally also, I mean, like I think what helps me reconcile these dilemmas that I have as a fan is that being able to do the work professionally um, makes me feel like I'm doing something to contribute to the solution, even if I'm not solving mm-hmm. these things um, directly. You know, I'm hopefully explaining things to people who would never engage with some of these topics if it were outside of the realm of sports. Um, I think that also sports allows us to have these conversations with different types of people at the same time, because it really does kind of cut us down to our fandoms beyond our other identities. Um, And, you know, I, it's, it's, you know, when you see how the sausage is made, especially, you know, Jessica and I do this professionally, obviously um, it's just impossible for us to ignore all of those things and and really turn the blinders on. Um, But at the same time, like Jessica said, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be sports writers if we didn't really love sports. Like who, you know, (laughs) I think that especially as women, we often get the, you know, Oh, you don't actually love sports because you're always criticizing it, which is, you know, a very kind of easy cop out, but it's like, no, like why do you understand how much work we have to put into enjoying sports just because of people, because of people who say things like that and, and think that way. But we love them so much that we do, it's harder for us. And, and, but we, we do that work. Um, So, you know, I think that being able to do that on a professional level um, helps me with just the, you know, everyday Kavitha fandom thing. I will say, though, like, I I don't know if, and I've said this for years now, I don't know if there is such a thing for me anymore as watching sports purely for pleasure. And what I mean by that is I don't mean that I don't get pleasure out of watching sports. Again, I do this for a living. I'm not a masochist. Um, You know, if I if I didn't enjoy watching six (laughs) basketball games a day, I would not be doing this for a living. But I, I don't think it's impossible for me to watch sports without thinking critically of them, without thinking about how, you know, the thing that I'm watching happen on the court is connecting to things that are happening um, out on the streets. And I don't I also just don't think that just even if we take all of the, the political and social stuff out of it, I don't think it's just it's possible for me to watch sports without thinking about what the angle I would be covering or writing this about would be. So just on that level, I don't know if if, if there's such a thing as a as 100 percent pleasure watching of sports for me anymore. But but that's okay because I chose to do this for a living and and I kind of knew what I was signing up for um, at least in part. So yeah, I, I, I think that just the, the way that my job helps guide me through my fandom and, and listen, like we've also said on, on numerous interviews that I think writing this book was cathartic for us as fans and as journalists and, and also maybe slightly therapy (laughs) to be able to interview people who, um, who have the same dilemmas and, and, and also don't have all the solutions because we certainly don't either. Um, so yeah, I think that we hope that readers can at least get that kind of same sense of catharsis or at least, you know, finding community in the fact that, um, other people feel this way too. 
Absolutely. Well, we have to say, Kavitha and Jessica, thank you so, so much for spending your time with us. This was definitely one of, we say this every time, but this is definitely one of the best, you know, interviews we've ever done. And I think just really kind of walking us through the kind of conflictedness of it all, as I think, as, as like fans, as former athletes, I think most of us were, but also as, as people who think about sport critically. And, and like you said, um, really like the fact that your book helps to explain that to fans who maybe don't necessarily take a critical take take, but may after reading it, I think that that is such an important intervention. And uh, we've said this already, but please go out and check out their book. It's called Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, Dilemmas of the Modern Sports Fan. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for tuning into another episode of the End of Sport podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, share, and subscribe. Give us a follow on Twitter or Instagram at endofsportpod, or shoot us an email at theendofsport at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.